chapter 11. And if you need a Bible, we have some extra in the back. Just raise your hand and Pastor Jeremiah will be happy to provide you one. John chapter 11 is where we are looking. And uh, we last week looked at the first 16 verses of the passage. And this is the famous story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus is, on, this miracle is only recorded in one of the four Gospels. And it is a bit unique that the other Gospels do not make mention of it. But um, certainly each book has its own emphasis and purpose. And the Spirit of God led in the writing of these books. John 11, we, we finished out with Jesus explaining uh, some of, of his thoughts about coming back to Judea. And we spent a lot of time looking at the idea of Jesus waiting. And if you were here, you may remember, and if you weren't, I'll bring you quickly up to speed. A messenger had come to Jesus and said that Lazarus was sick. And the messenger had spent about a day reaching Jesus. Jesus then chose to stay two more days where he was. And then Jesus made the one-day journey back to where Lazarus was located. This meant that it had been four days since the messenger left. And Turns out, as you put all the pieces together, that the day the messenger left is the day that Lazarus died. And so uh, the, the messenger came back, and the messenger came with the message that Jesus had said, and the message was this, this sickness is not to death, but for the glory of God. And that must have been such a sad message to hear, knowing that Lazarus had died. We discussed the idea that sometimes Jesus chooses to wait to move in our lives, and one person has said it much better. They said, not only does God order our steps, but God also orders our stops. And those moments of waiting and where you're seeking the Lord and you're not having an answer can be some of the most difficult moments in a Christian's life. But what we see in this passage is that God is always working for his glory. God is always bringing some good out of every situation, even when we are waiting. And so if you missed last week, I really encourage you to get on Apple Podcasts and and listen to that uh, message. But today we're going to pick up in verse 17 in the passage. John 11, verse 17. And if you're able to stand, let's stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. The Bible says, Then when Jesus came, he found that, they, that he had already been laying in the grave four days. Now Bethany was near to Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary still sat in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you will ask of God, God will give it you. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master has come and calls for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. 
Then the Jews who were with her and comforted her in the house, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goes to the grave to weep there. Then when Mary had come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, Behold, how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Therefore Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay on it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time he stinks, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you should see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people who stand by, I said it, that they may believe that you have sent me. And thus, when he had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And he who was dead came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who came to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Let's ask the Lord to bless and to help. Brother Sterren, would you pray as we begin? Amen. Please be seated. When I was growing up, my father was a pastor, and I think I mentioned several times that he would do funerals for a variety of people, and we were sometimes involved, and uh, sometimes we would sing at funerals, sometimes we'd just be there um, with my dad to kind of support the family. And I remember this one funeral where uh, it was supposed to start at a certain time, and we had been driving to the funeral, and we were, I think, about 45 minutes early or something before it was supposed to begin. And we had almost reached the funeral location when my dad realized he forgot something at home. And it was about a 20-minute drive. So he whipped that car around. He drove back 20 minutes. It was some poem he was supposed to read at the funeral. Grabbed that poem, got in the car, and we drove like bananas to get back there. We got there with just a few minutes to spare. And I remember going in and, and uh, <laughs> the funeral director being like, I could have had a dollar for every time some pastor did this to me. 
being so close, being so late. He says, it happens all the time. You know, he was on edge and uh, others were on edge. But my dad said, I forgot the poem. He had an explanation, right? I forgot the poem and I knew I had to read this. And so I got the poem and we were good to go. We took all, we got going and the funeral went just fine. When you're late and you have an explanation, it really helps to alleviate the situation. You know, when you can say, I had a flat tire or my phone died and I didn't have my maps to get here. If you have some sort of explanation, it really helps diffuse the situation. When Jesus arrives in town, Mary and Martha both believe he is late. If you had been here, this would not have turned out this way, and we'll see them say that. And yet Jesus does not give a full explanation, does he? He doesn't lay out every detail of what's going to happen or why he did what he did. He does not give an explanation. But by the end of the story... He didn't need to give an explanation because the story gave its own explanation. And there are times in our life where Jesus doesn't explain why he does what he does. But if we will keep trusting him by the time the story is finished, we won't need an explanation. Let's begin in verse 17. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had already been laying in the grave for days. Now, Bethany was near to Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. Okay, so as we get rolling, we just see here uh, some details, the details of the situation. He gets in town, uh, he finds out the news, which he himself already knew because he had already said he had been dead, but he had been in the grave for four days. And we may mention last week that Jews and the people of that time, they didn't do embalming, they didn't do any of that stuff. Within 24 hours, people were put away in the grave. And so uh, a little bit later, we'll, we'll talk about that four days and, and what that means. But Bethany is very near to Jerusalem. And that's important for the friends who come. And it's important for the impact that this miracle has. They didn't have news media. News traveled how? Through word of mouth, right? Yapping jaws is how the news got around. Because it was so close to Jerusalem, the news of what would happen would impact Jerusalem very, very soon. Verse 19 says, Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. The, uh, this, again, this culture and this era, they would have about seven days of mourning. So they would have the funeral, if you will, and then they'd have about seven days where friends would come and they would probably, you know, if, if it was someone that was truly loved, they would probably uh, maybe do sackcloth or you know, in our culture, we might think of dressing in black, but they would have signs of mourning and they wouldn't do any feasting or anything like that for seven days in, in sorrow and in, in uh, a process of mourning. So the friends would come over this period of days to comfort, to join in with the sorrowing, and, uh, and we'll talk about that a little more also. So these are the details. If, as we look at verse 19, though, we see um, next this difference in sorrow. And if you look at Mary and Martha, you see the difference between the two of them. Verse 20 says, when Mar Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Now, if you look at this difference, these two sisters have a different response to Jesus coming. And uh, sometimes when people are sorrowing, they process that very differently. And you have Martha and Mary. They're two sisters who we already know from other parts of the Bible. They were very different. Martha was the hands-on, the, the doer. She's probably the older sister. Mary was the more uh, relaxed, the more emotional. And when this moment comes where Jesus has, is coming onto town and, and they find out, Martha immediately takes off and she runs to Jesus. She goes straight to him. And Mary sits in the house. 
And some people, when grief comes, they immediately reach out to talk to someone. They immediately open up and they latch on to someone and they start talking. And there are other people that in grief, they withdraw. And they say, I don't want to be around people. I just want to be alone. You know, just give me space, leave me alone. And you can see in verse 20 that these two sisters are kind of responding very differently. Where Martha is running to Jesus and Mary is withdrawing in in isolation. So uh, later we're going to see that Mary eventually goes to Jesus. But notice, we see in verse 21, and we're going to see this twice in the message today, this delay is being revisited. If you had been here, and oh, I think if we can just put ourselves a little bit in the story, we can feel this, can't we? If only you had been here. Jesus, you're late. What are you? If only you had been here. If only things had been different. And so many times at the point of death, people look back and they say, if only I had done this, and if only this was different, if only I had checked on their pulse, and if only I had done this, and there's this wishing that things were different. And Martha and Mary feel this deeply, and they are wishing that things were different. And they're not holding it in. She's being very blunt with Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only things were different. If only you had come. If only, if only you had come sooner. Uh, things could be different. They had this assumption that Jesus had to be there to rescue. But there's a story earlier in John that teaches us Jesus did not need to be present to heal someone. Do you remember this story? The story of the nobleman's son in John 4. Remember, he says, you don't have to come under the roof of my house. You can just speak the word and it will be so. And Jesus did it from a whole distance away. He spoke the word and the nobleman's son was healed. But Mary and Martha had the idea that Jesus had to be there with them in order to do something. Let's look at verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you will ask of God, God will give it you. This I call a declaration of faith because she says, if only you had been here, but then she follows it up by saying, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Now, this is a good response. This is a good thing to say. And I, in my study, in my mind, I kind of had to think, what was she actually saying? Like, what's she implying here? She may have just been saying that, that God could comfort her. And if Jesus would seek the Lord for comfort, that he could give grace for this situation. So she says, I wish you'd have been here, but since you haven't been here, you know, you can ask God to help us through this time and he will help us. And so there is a declaration of faith on that level. I don't know if she was thinking beyond this. I don't know if she was thinking that God could do more than that. All she says, though, is that God will answer your prayer. God will work, um, and I know that God will work through you. And so I think maybe what she's trying to say is, I really, really wish you'd have been here, Jesus, but I'm not mad at you, and I, I understand that God still can do something. You know? Expressing that frustration but also a declaration of faith at the same time. Can I just remind us that there are moments in our life where we wish Jesus had done something different. And we in our heart are just like, dear God, why is it working out? Why isn't it this way? This is how I wanted it to be. This is how I dreamed it would be. This is what I prayed it would be. And it's not that way. But what I see in Martha is also another expression. And so you can share your frustrations to the Lord. You can tell the Lord your pain. You can say, dear God, I wish it wasn't this way. That's not a wrong thing. But you do need to pair it up with, but dear God, I know that you're God. 
I know that you still are working. I know that you still have a plan. And Martha seems to be doing this. She seems to be laying out her fear and anger and frustration, but she's also stating faith. And she's saying, you're still at work. And so may, may this be a guide for us to lay both of these things before the Lord and to, yes, share our frustrations and disappointments, but to also declare our faith in the Lord. Now, Jesus quickly says in verse 23, your brother shall rise again. Now, this sounds really good. This is, this, to us, we're like, oh, this is great. Your brother shall rise again. another day, but in this day, it still leaves her rather hopeless. I know he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus, I love his answer because he doesn't disagree with her because that's true. And he doesn't come out and say what he's going to do. But what, what he does is he points her to faith. Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. I just want to pause right there. I am the resurrection and the life. Notice Jesus doesn't just say, I do resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. That's who I am. That's my identity. And he says, I'm the resurrection and I am the life. Jesus is both of these things. And throughout John, we've seen these different I am statements. And if we really pause on this, I am the resurrection. I am the life. These two truths are, are very much the same. Because resurrection is to give life, and life is to live, right? And so they're very much one and the same. Jesus is life. He is life, and because he is life, then he has life. He is the resurrection, and because he is the resurrection, he does resurrect people. But it's not just that God gave him a certain power. No, he is God, and he had that power. And here he says to Martha, look, you need to remember who I am in this moment. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And if Jesus is life, what does that mean for us? It means two things, that if we have Jesus, we have life. And it means if we have Jesus, we have a reason to live. In this moment of death, Martha may have felt like her life was shattered. Right? This is my brother. Maybe it was her older brother. to have a man to do the business affairs was, was very important. Women were 
were uh, not looked well upon and didn't have you know privileges. And so society was living in that time without a husband or a man in the house to be under a discipline. Martha is looking at her life and she's thinking, my life is ruined. My life is over. My brother is gone. My brother is dead. And Jesus says, It means that if we are in Christ, that we have life. But secondly, I want to show us that it means we have a reason to live. Because he is the resurrection and he is the life, that means that if we are one with him, we have a purpose to our living. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The world today says the abundant life is found in money. The abundant life is found in fun. The abundant life is found in power, and they have all their definitions for the abundant life. But Jesus says, I am life. I am life. And if you want to experience true living, you're going to experience life with Jesus. And our Christian message is this. We have found Christ, and he is the only thing we look for. He is our heart. He is our joy. He is our purpose. And, some, and that doesn't mean I don't love my wife, or I don't love my kids, or my job, or any of those things. But it means that I love him above that. may take my money, but if I have Jesus, I have a reason to live. Remember, if you've been following our Philippians study, Paul said, for me to live is Christ. He says, the reason I live is Jesus. And here Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the message to Martha is this, your life is not over. Your life is not ended. Your purpose for living is not gone because he, Jesus, is the resurrection and the life. This gives me great hope. And for each of us, one day, each of us will stand beside some casket. And we may think that our life is over, that our life is ruined, that it's gone and it's empty now. But I want us to remember a voice in our head that will say, I am the resurrection Jesus, our resurrection. Jesus, our life. So then he goes on. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this? Now, this is a little confusing when you really focus on what he says, but I think if we understand it properly, it all fits together. It says, he who believes in me, and then it says, though he were dead. And I did a lot of looking at this phrase in, in Greek and trying to pair it up with different texts and different things, and I, I don't believe this is talking about spiritual death. Um, I believe it's speaking of those who come to be dead. And so it's saying that we even if we come to a point of physical death, we are still fine. We are still okay. And if you've been paying attention, every Christian who has claimed Christ still physically dies, right? Just because I got saved doesn't mean I won't physically die. And so I have believed in Christ, and although the day will come that I will be dead physically, yet I shall live. D.L. Moody is famous for saying this. He says, one day you will read in And I can't remember all he went on to say, but he was simply saying this, that death for the Christian is not the end. It's not uh, 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 the, the curse. Rather, death for us is the door to eternal life. I was sharing with someone in the last few weeks, I can't remember who, and I was saying, you know, unborn babies are just amazing, and they're alive, and they're human, but once they're born, they're in a whole nother realm. They're in a whole nother genre of existence. And it's the same way. When we die and our spirit and soul go to be with the Lord and our body remains here, guess what? 
we are in a whole new realm with the Lord. And he shall live. And Jesus says, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. We shall never be separate from the Lord. Now look at that last phrase. Do you believe this? Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? All around us, there are people who believe that death is the end. Death is the end. That that's really all you have, and you die. That's it. Dead like a dog. Or if there is an afterlife, we have no clue, but it's not our mission. Live for now. Jesus says, do you believe this? And as Christians, when we receive Christ and when we let him be Lord of our life in an ongoing basis, we live in a way that we expect to die. Because death for us is not the end. In a, in a way, it's really the beginning. <laughs> it's the beginning. This is like the pre-stage. And then eternal life is real life. And he says, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that in him is life? eternal life, an ongoing eternal existence with God. Do you believe this? I hope you believe that Jesus is who he said he was. It's the most important, important thing. We must move quickly. Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Look at those labels that she puts on Jesus. Um, son of God, the Christ, and then the one who is coming into the world. Um, all of these are things that Jesus had taught and that the Old Testament prophecies had talked about. And he called himself the son over and over again. Martha clearly believed the message that Jesus had, had given. She says, I believe you. You are the son of God. You are the Christ. You're the one coming into this world. And so she responds to the Lord in faith. She believes that Jesus is the resurrection and life. But she doesn't know what Jesus is about to do. She's just trusted Jesus. Can I just pause here for a quick moment? This is a vital, vital point. God does not simply call us to believe in what we believe in. He calls us to believe in what he And yes, Jesus has made promises. And yes, he will keep his promises. But more than the promises of what we get, we are to ultimately put our faith in the one who gives his promise in the nature, in the character, in the person of God himself. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. He didn't say, believe in my future resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. And, and we can't always know what, what God's going to do in our life in the future, but we can always put our faith in him, in who he is, in his heart, in his character. And, and she does this here. She says, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the son of God. You are the one who is coming into the world. So she puts her faith in Jesus himself. And when she says, I believe, it's, it's, uh, she's saying, I have believed and I do believe. I, I, I love that. In, in, it, in Greek, it's a different tense that it's past and it's present all at the same time. She says, I have believed in you and I do believe in you. What a great statement um, by Martha here. So verse, verse 28, we see now that she goes back, okay? She calls her sister Mary privately and says, the master has come and calls for you. And that word master has the concept of teacher and uh, the one leading and in authority in a teaching sort of way. And so then it says that Mary comes to Jesus. Okay, verse 29, she goes quickly. She comes to him. 
Verse 30, it just tells us Jesus is still out of town um, and in the same spot where Martha was. Verse 31, now, these other Jews don't know what's happening. Now, they don't know because Mary has been told privately. So all of a sudden, Mary starts to leave, and all the people of the house go, oh, like, what's, what's going on? Oh, she must be going to the grave. She's going to weep and, and sorrow there at the grave. So we're going to go with her. We're going to weep with her. And that's what they think is happening. But in verse 32, it says, Then when Mary had come where Jesus was, she saw him and saw him. She fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is a little different in, in several ways. When Martha comes, it's a very private moment. When Mary comes, she comes with this train of other people with her. And so Jesus is not uh, free to speak privately with Mary like he was with Martha. These other Jews come right along with, but Mary, she is much more dramatic than Martha. Mary collapses at his feet, and she's weeping. And she says, if, she says the same thing that, that Martha did. She says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And to me, it's clear that these sisters had said this to each other, and they both thought this, and they both said the same thing. But Mary comes, it appears to me, with a little bit more emotion and a little bit more of grief that's maybe uh, out of control in a sense. And she's dropping at his feet and she's saying, oh, if you'd only been here. Oh, Jesus, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, listen to the response of Jesus. And this is where we see Jesus showing his humanity and his deity all at the same time. This response is verse 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. This display that we see here, Jesus has a response. Jesus sees Mary weeping and Jesus sees all these Jews weeping. And he has this response, so groaning, and we'll talk about it more in just a moment. In, because it says it again further down in the text, and it says he's troubled, okay? But in verse 34, he goes right on to say, where have you laid him? Where, where is he at? And this display of sorrow is that Jesus takes himself to the grave with Mary, with Martha, and with all these weeping Jews. Verse 35, uh, I'm sorry, they said to him, Lord, come and see. And look at this most famous of verses, verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, I want to talk with us for just a moment about the Jewish style of sorrow. When they would have a funeral, they would not do like we do. They had a funeral where people would wail and cry. They would be very loud in their wailing. And these Jews who came along felt it their part to wail along with them. And in fact, some rich people would even hire people to come wail, to make a bigger commotion because it made it seem as though the person were more loved or more appreciated or something. So there, there's this crowd of people, and Mary is weeping. She's wailing. The word has this idea of loud wailing. These Jews are wailing, and Jesus goes with them to the grave. And the Bible says that he weeps. Jesus weeps. And the word that's used here is not a loud wailing. It seems to be just like normal tears. And I want us to see that the, the sorrow that Jesus has here is not a despairing wailing. But it was 
a quiet weeping, one of love and sympathy and of pain, but it was not a statement of despair. Jesus knew what was going to happen, didn't he? Jesus knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He had already said in verse 17, I'm going to raise him from the dead. Uh, Verse 16. So the point is this. Jesus knew what was going to happen, and yet he still weeps here. And that tells me several things. We say things like these, this. God exists outside of time. Yesterday, today, and forever. He's from, there is no end or beginning. He's the eternal God, and so time has no bearing on him. Well, that is true, but God also exists in time. And this passage here shows that Jesus knows that he's about to be in pain in this present moment, and he's sad. He's sorrowing. Now, do we believe Jesus has all power and authority? Yes. So Jesus had the power to hold in his crying, didn't he? He could have done what sometimes we do, and we do the stiff upper lip thing, and hold it in. And we shouldn't do that. Jesus chose to cry here, and he associated himself with these sorrowing people. He had the ability to keep it in, but he did not. He knew what would happen in a moment, but in this moment, he associated with those who were sorrowing. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 that Jesus would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We see it right here. You know, later in Romans, Paul would instruct the believers, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Jesus did that right here. He wept with those who wept. In Hebrews, we read of Jesus that in all things it was necessary for him to be made similar to his brothers, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And then later it will say, for we do not have a high priest who cannot be concerned with the feeling of our weaknesses. There's two negatives there. That means we do have who can feel our feelings. And Jesus here weeps. And I love John eleven thirty five 35, because it tells me that Jesus is a human, that Jesus sorrows as well, and that when I sorrow, Jesus will weep as well. God is a big God, and he's able to rejoice with the rejoicing and to weep with the weeping all at the same time. And in time, in the moments of our sorrow and weeping, He is our faithful high priest, and he can feel what we feel, the Bible says. He has feelings, and he's experienced this life. And so when we experience life and we sorrow, Jesus weeps with us. That gives me great comfort, because there are some sorrows that people don't know about. Sometimes there are times where you may weep in the quietness of your room or in the quietness of your car, and others are not around. Others maybe don't know, but there is one in heaven who knows you. And the Bible says that he So we see Jesus weeping here, and um, we must go on. Verse 36, they say then, behold how he loved him. The Jews saw this as a sign of love, and uh, it's stated several times in the prior passage earlier that Jesus loved Lazarus. Now we must also kind of ask, what was Jesus crying about? But I also want us to look at this display of anger, because Verse 33 told us that Jesus groaned in himself. And then it also says he was troubled. He groaned and was troubled. 
And then if we go down to verse 38, it again says that he's groaning in himself. Well, so he groaned more than once, and he was troubled. And this word groaned has the idea more so of, more so of anger than of grief or sorrow. And it has this idea of to be um, disturbed or disgusted or um, upset. And when we think about this in context, there is something that Jesus is angry about or upset about, and it's troubling his spirit. There's a righteous anger going on here. And I wonder if it is simply death itself, where Jesus sees the pain and the sorrow and the suffering of death, and it is angering him, and he hates it. Um, do we not hate death? Do we not hate it? Yeah, we do, and Jesus hates it too. And he will conquer it, and he has conquered it, but in this moment, I believe Jesus is turned to anger over death itself. But then also in verse 37, we see these words, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? And I wonder here if the anger is about their uh, unbelief and their uh, mistrust of his character and his nature. Jesus is saying, you're judging me too soon. Last week we talked about this, that, that there are moments where Jesus doesn't look good. But that's because the story's not done. And in that moment where Jesus delayed and he didn't come and he didn't come and he didn't come, those moments were moments where Jesus didn't look good. And here are these Jews, and they're kind of facilitating this frustration with Jesus. You know, they're kind of egging on Mary and Martha to some extent. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? And of course, Jesus is saying, of course I could have done that. But that's not what I was to do. That's not what's best. And so we see some anger at death and I believe some anger at doubt. Both of these two things in the story. And now we get to this moment of deliverance where the story takes this turn. And I love this section, verse 39. Uh, it I'm sorry, verse 38. It says at the end there, it was a cave and a stone lay on it. And then verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Take away the stone. So they get to the grave, and, you know, the weeping, it appears, is on the way to the grave. They get to the grave, and Jesus says, there it is. Take away the stone. Now, this grave was either a hole in the ground this direction, vertically, or it was a hole in the hillside vertically. We don't know which one it was. Different books say different ones. Anybody no one knows. But the point is that there was a hole either sideways or down, and this hole had a large stone on it. And the stone would have been put there to keep animals out. And the stone is there, and he says, remove that stone. Now, quick question. Couldn't Jesus have just done the, uh, you know, the superhero move and gone, and the stone be moved on its own? He could have, but he did not. Now, let's ask a question. Did these people have the ability to move the stone? They did. Did these people have the ability to raise Lazarus from the dead? They did not. And one of the lessons we can take from this is simply this. God will not do for you what you need to do for you. If there's something you can do, you don't just get to sit there and say, Dear God, please do it for me. It's not how life works. Now, sometimes people want that, right? They want to sit in the chair and the money just flows in. and Everything just goes easy. And they just get a mess, right? No, 
here he says, you go take away the stone. And now this involves them in this big process of what Jesus is going to do. Somebody had to have the guts and the strength and the, the trust in Jesus to go up and move that stone. Now, I don't know about you, but I think Lazarus would have maybe given them a pat on the back a little later and say, thanks for moving that stone. Moving the stone was preparation for what was coming next. And sometimes God will do the miracle, but he is looking for you to step up and do your part and to listen to his command and to do his will. And we do God's will. And yes, we need God's grace, but still God calls us and says, you walk with me, you read my word, you gather together, you serve me, right? And then God says, I will do this and this and this. So he says, you move the stone. Somebody got up and moved the stone. But first we have an objection. And Martha, verse 39, Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, why this time he stinks, for he has been dead four days. Four days. Now, the four days has several different um, important elements. The Jewish tradition taught that the soul or spirit would hover around or nearby the body for three days. That after three days it would depart. Now, that's just a tradition. Um, the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. But it shows that this is past that point even that it's past the point of any theoretical thing being done. But she makes an important point, Martha does, that says, by this time, he stinks. We don't experience this sort of thing because of our technology and our coolers and all that we do with dead bodies in our day and time. But they didn't have all that, and they didn't use that kind of stuff. And so they understood the decomposition process. And they were aware of how quick you had to get them in and how many days you had. And what happens is after about 72 hours, which is three days, things get very bad for that body. Things get much worse after 72 hours. And uh, science can, can confirm all this, but the decay and the breakdown vastly accelerates after 72 hours. The internal organs are decaying. And as they decay, the body begins to swell. And the process of decay brings bacteria and gas and these different things. And the swelling, the skin starts to separate. And, and in the face and these other organs, the body starts to swell. And because it swells, it pops. And it breaks open. And I hate to be gory and nasty and ghastly, but this is just the truth. Your body begins to seep out liquid. Because where the skin breaks, the liquids on the inside begin to seep out. And the body would have been green at this point. And Martha says, Jesus, Jesus, you can't go look at him now. You know, sometimes people have this thing, they want to see the body after death, they want to look at the body. And, and Martha's just like, Jesus, you can't. We can't be doing this. No, I mean, he stinks. And Jesus responds, and I like this, because he doesn't tell her what he's going to do. What does he do? He points her to trust in himself. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you should see the glory of God? Oh, I love this. He says, look, I told you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. So he says, just trust me. Just trust me on this. You want to move that stone. There's a reason here, and the reason is the glory of God. He doesn't say, I want to resurrect Lazarus to life again. He doesn't say that. He just says, trust me. Trust me and look for the glory of God. Even at this moment where all is going to be made plain in just a moment, he still doesn't tell her what he's going to do. We want the prophetic God, don't we? We like the prophecies. And we would like the personal message. Tomorrow we're going to have the message. Next week I will meet you at church. We would like that sort of God. But God does not really do it that way very often, if at all. What he says is, trust me. Trust me. Watch what I'll do. Trust me. 
In verse 41, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. Jesus lifted his eyes and said, and I love this prayer. He, he just gives thanks. He, he doesn't even ask for anything. I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people who stand by, I said it, that they may believe that you have sent me. Jesus just does this for the benefit of the crowd. He gives thanks for God already hearing him, and he doesn't even ask for anything. Why? Because he is the resurrection and the life. And he and his father work in complete unison. So verse 33, And thus when he had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And he calls to Lazarus. And the verse 44 says, He who was dead came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And with that one word, with that one call, he had put his body all back together. He had healed those broken skins. He had restored all of his blood. He had given him life and breath in his body again. That soul and spirit returned into that body. And he came walking out of the grave. Now, I don't know how he came out. Now, some people have a hard time to say, oh, well, he's all wrapped up on his skin. Well, A, if he had been swelling, then the grave clothes may have gotten stretched a little bit. B, sometimes, like the Egyptians, If it was just a, a either form of grave, it would have a ladder if it was a hole, or it would just have a path, you know. And when he called to him, Lazarus could hear the direction of the call, and he may have just been right near the door. God may have given him some assistance, we don't know, to get him to the door. But there he is in his grave clothes. His face is covered, his body's all covered. And you know what's happening is everyone is in amazement. Everyone is just shocked and stunned. Nobody's they do they let him out unbind him and let him go and now we really reach probably the crux of the passage the difference in response this is just stunning to me verse 45 says many of the jews who came to mary and had seen the things that jesus did believed in him now to me that sounds very reasonable i would believe in jesus too if i saw lazarus raised from the dead but some of them went their ways to the pharisees and told them what things jesus had done Verse 46 shares some people that did not believe in him. So there's believers and unbelievers. Even in this type of miracle, there was a difference in response. And can I just remind us that the word of God goes forth, the work of God goes forth, and there's always two responses. There's always two responses. If you have enough people, there's always two responses. There's some who believe, and there's some who don't. And all through this Gospel of John, we've seen over and over again that John says, I wrote this so that you would believe. I wrote this so you would see the signs, so you would know Jesus, and you would believe. But here he shares that there is the other side. There are people who do not believe. And even at the sight of this miracle, there are some who do not believe. Now later, turn, turn flip one page to John 12. Just look quickly with me at John 12, 17. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, for they had heard that he had done this miracle. These people who believed in verse 45, they talked about it. They told other people what they had seen. They said, Lazarus came out of that grave. We were there. We saw it. He is alive. 
Now, verse 46, these unbelievers also talk about it. But they talk about it from a position of doubt. Verse 46 says, Some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. This seems shocking to us, but I want to remind you very quickly of another story of a different guy called Lazarus. And this Lazarus was an unsaved man. He died and went to hell. And when he is in hell, Luke 16 tells us, he is begging Abraham to send someone to go witness to his family. And Abraham speaks to this Lazarus, and he says this, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if one rises from the dead. Some people's doubt is so firm and so strong that God can literally raise up dead people in front of their eyes and they do not believe. That's kind of scary, isn't it? That's shocking to us. But I just want to speak this word to all that are listening. Your doubt can be overcome by faith. It can be. But belief in Christ does involve a choice on your part. A giving in, a listening, a receiving. This is your decision. Jesus did not stand by the side of the grave there and be like, all right, these, these will believe and these will not believe. No, no, no. Jesus does the work and you have a choice of response. And if there's one mistake that you can make here today, it would be to cling to your doubt and to disbelieve in Christ. That is the greatest, most foolish, most awful decision you could ever make in your life. And there are people that in this moment watch a dead man raised to life, and instead of rejoicing in Jesus and believing in him, they run to his enemies and say, guess what Jesus did? Now he raised someone from the dead. They didn't disbelieve what he had done. They disbelieved him. And there are people yet today that they live in a world that God made, they breathe the air that God made, they eat the food that God made, they have all the people in their life that God gave them, and they don't doubt what God has done in that sense. But they don't believe in him. They don't trust him. And here are these people. And they do not believe. As we close, I want to ask two quick questions. For the believer, does Jesus care? John eleven thirty five 35 teaches us Jesus does care. Most deeply, most certainly. In our moments of sorrow and question and fear, Jesus cares. He weeps with us. He feels with us. He associates with us. Jesus does care. He loves you and he weeps with you. But my second and, and most important question is, who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? We know who he is on his own. The Bible tells us that. But there has to be a connection with you. If Jesus is needs to become personal. The faith that we have with Jesus has to be personal. And Jesus in this passage shows that he has the authority over death. He has the power over death. And he is resurrection. He is life. And if you today will put your faith in him, your confidence in him, you too will have life. You too will have eternal life straight from the hands of Jesus. When you are one with the one who is resurrection, and who is life, death has lost its power over you. Eternal life is in his hands. And he is the giver of eternal life. I hope you will see Jesus clearly, and I hope you will make your personal decision about him.
Let's close our eyes, bow our heads in prayer, and we'll have a brief time here of response. We just call this our sermon response time. And 